The reason I wanted to begin with, with Scott, uh, pardon me, begin with Mark Enns is because last week Mark posed a difficulty for me which I did not have the presence of mind to answer adequately. It happens. It's called old age. What I said last week was that the baby Jesus lying in the manger didn't know nothing. He he would learn the same way all other babies learn through the information that come from his senses. Now when I was saying that, I was well aware and reflected on it critically. You are giving an Aristotelian position. And I was well aware of another argument from the Platonic side which says we don't get everything we know from our senses, but that there is inbuilt structural knowledge as part of our soul itself as soon as we start to reflect and does not come from our senses, such as the knowledge of mathematics, an understanding of the laws of logic. If Plato was right, what are you doing back there? You're supposed to know I'm talking, I'm talking about Jen. Whether Plato is right or not on that question, I, I'm, not, I'm not concerned. I tend myself to favor Plato's view over Aristotle's, but I was giving you this, the classical Aristotelian view, that anything a baby learns, he learns through his senses. And even if Plato's right, the baby will never recover mathematical knowledge or logical knowledge without the use of language. You'll never do that. And the only way you can learn language is somehow through his senses, so it may come back to the same thing. When I said that, Mark's objection was, if all Jesus knows through his senses, through his senses, how did he know that the woman at the Samaritan well had had five husbands, and the one she had then was not her husband? Okay. I did not give an adequate answer to that. I would never claim that everything Jesus knew, he knew through his senses. Okay. But I'm talking about the baby Jesus. Well, I wasn't talking about grown-up Jesus. I'm talking about the baby Jesus. Okay. When Jesus tells the woman, go call your husband, she says, I don't have a husband, and he responds, right, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're shacked up with now is not your husband. When he told her that, he didn't know it through his senses. Now, Mark, I think, was taking that, I think. Patricia, be prepared to defend him. <laughs> I think Mark was taking that as evidence of Jesus' divine omniscience, that he knew all things. That comes back to the question we were examining last week. That is not, however, the inference drawn by the, by the Samaritan woman herself. She doesn't say, ah, 
you know everything, you must be God. What, how does she respond? You're a prophet. In other words, the ability to read hearts, to discern secret things going on, is not, is not evidence of the divine omniscience. It's evidence that one has special prophetic uh, clairvoyance to be able to read things that are going on because it's, it's a revelation from God's Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not, I'm not much into, what do they call these guys, psychics. Okay? Uh, I don't know how to explain what psychics do, but there's so many things in this world I don't know how to explain. Um, the psychics is way down my list of things to inquire about. But the start of Jerry. Point at that point? That's the thesis of my book. <laughs> Jerry? Jerry, look. Clairvoyance. <laughs> Make him buy the book. Yeah, he can write the preface. <laughs> You know, Jesus in the Flesh by Patrick Henry Reardon, prefaced by Jerry Carey. Uh, actually, look at today's bulletin. Okay, because I knew you were going to say that, so that's why I put it in the bulletin. At the, have any of you read the Pastor Pondering yet for today? talk about, the first column is about Joseph, the second column is about Mary. And they end up in the column about Mary that Jesus tells her one day he's going down to be baptized by John the Baptist. And then when he comes back, he's a completely changed person. Um, I finished writing the introduction to the book last night. For the sixth time I finished writing the, the introduction to the book last night. And I knew I'm going to have to somehow justify spending nearly half of the book on the life of Jesus up to Luke 4 when he goes in the temple and reads the text from Isaiah. Almost half the book is on, in other words, that part of Jesus' ministry. And I was reflecting how is it that nobody else has ever done that before? People writing on Jesus, unless they're writing a book just on that time frame, writing a book about Jesus, they would devote half the book to his, to his the years of his formation, his education. Um, I got to think, you know, the reason I would do that is because I'm a modern man. Even though I have no expertise in the behavioral and, and social sciences, that they have, in fact, helped to form the worldview in which I look at things. Um, a good symbol of that would be the confessions of Jean Jacques Rousseau, that a, exactly half of the confessions of Jean Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau 
bring him to age 21. That is such a modern preoccupation, a, a notion that a person's character takes shape, and that's a, that's a funny way to say it because that's what character means, it's shape. <laughs> okay? I want to say a person's character is formed. It's not good either because character is formed. A person gets his character from the early years of his life. So the, so the, basic, the basic way of perceiving the world, looking at the world and so forth, comes from the, from the way he was raised. Um, genetics has something to do with it, but I'm not, I'm not sure how much genetics has to do with it. I'm not sure how much. Uh, I've seen, uh, I mean, what, what's the difference between a little baby in Switzerland and a little baby in the United States? Is, is the little baby in Switzerland born with, with more smarts than a little baby in the United States? Maybe, but I'm not sure that's what accounts for the fact that a 10-year-old kid in Switzerland speaks three languages. He's raised with three languages. And kids in the United States, they, they only learn one language. I mean, the one they need, Spanish. But other than that, <laughs> I, have felt, I feel really ashamed of myself. This is the first time I've ever lived this long in a foreign country and didn't learn the language. <laughs> Within two weeks in Italy, I was speaking fluent Italian. Uh, within a month in France, I could at least order meals in French. Okay. And... Uh, my German is pretty good, and I've only spent two weeks in Germany. Uh, I came to Chicago, everything broke down. <laughs> you know, I came in, and everybody was speaking Polish. I just and then they switched to Spanish. Um, and I live in the ha last house on the block owned by a Dane. <laughs> um, this switch to return to Jesus telling the woman. You've had five husbands, the one you have now is not your husband. That is not essentially different than the first meeting between Samuel and Saul. You with me? When, when Saul and Samuel meet for the first time, the reader already knows, Saul doesn't, but the reader already knows because the inspired author tells us that God had told Samuel a great deal about Saul and when he meets him he starts to tell him well you know those those donkeys you're looking for they've been found and Saul's looking at like this you haven't told anybody and then he goes on and prophesies certain things that will happen in other words, the, the woman herself when she's confronted with this she doesn't say ah you must be divine you knew about my <clears throat> domestic arrangements she didn't say that. She says, you must be a prophet. Uh, the most interesting and the most challenging scene in the Gospels, I think, relative to this question, is in the meeting of Jesus with uh, Nathaniel. Nathaniel comes up to him and Jesus says, Behold an Israelite without guile. Nathaniel says, How do you know me? Jesus says, Before Philip called you, you were under a fig tree. I saw you there. And Nathaniel's response went, goes way beyond the Samaritan woman. 
you're the king of Israel. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. There's, a, there's an actual confession of faith there. The evangelist, notice, does not tell what that means. He doesn't tell what it means. He just, just records the words and lets them stand there. What does it mean? This is a matter of some speculation, but let me give you what is a common speculation. That Nathaniel had been in prayer, seeking God's will, searching for God in his conscience and his heart, while he was sitting, sitting under uh, the tree. And he had some experience of God or the divine guidance or something like that. And he thought it was just him and God. Then he comes and meets Jesus, and Jesus seems to know all about it. <laughs> all of what did Nathaniel mean when he said, you're the king of Israel, you're the son of God? King of Israel clearly means Messiah. Does he mean, when he says it, does he mean consubstantial person of the second trinity? Certainly not. You know, he hadn't read up on his, Chalce uh, on his Chalcedonian theology at that point. <laughs> but he recognized something. Is there a parallel to that anywhere in the Bible? Because that's pretty high. It's a pretty high level of clairvoyance to be actually intruding yourself into somebody else's relationship with God. <laughs> I believe there is. I believe there is a parallel. The instance I'm thinking of of the double revelation made to Paul and to Ananias at the same time. Paul is converted on the way to Damascus. He goes to Damascus. He doesn't know anybody. The Christians aren't going to have anything to do with him because he came there to kill them. He came there to arrest them, drag them back to Jerusalem. The Christians are, the Christians are not going to mess with him at all. He spends three days fasting. That's our first account of Lent. A fasting period before baptism. We also know he's praying because when the Lord speaks to Ananias, that's how he's going to recognize Paul. Behold, he prays. So he's spending three days in prayer and fasting. The Lord speaks to Ananias, who is reverenced in the Orthodox calendar as the first bishop of Damascus. <clears throat> he's sent over to baptize, which means that's an apostolic office. He's sent over to baptize this man. The Lord starts talking to Ananias. Ananias had this marvelous intimacy with Christ, which allowed him to backhawk. I mean, he's, he's almost the same level as St. Catherine of Siena <laughs> or St. Teresa of Avila. There's some two of my favorite backtalkers. <laughs> Lord tells them something, they, and they double think. You know, well, I don't know. This doesn't sound right to me. You know. <laughs> so the Lord tells Ananias all he needs to know about Saul, about what has happened to him, and so forth. Ananias says, Oh, Lord. You're probably not aware, but let me fill you in. <laughs> okay. 
There's a point or two you may have overlooked. He came here to kill us. <laughs> and the Lord says, no, you go ahead. Go ahead and baptize him. <laughs> go ahead and baptize him. Uh, and then Paul, according to, according to Acts 9, has a vision, because remember he can't see anything. He's blind. He has a vision of Ananias coming in to baptize him. Now notice how the prayer life of one is being disclosed in the prayer life of the other, and the prayer life of the second is being disclosed in the prayer life of this one. That's a, that's a fairly rare phenomenon. You've got another example of it, however, in the very next chapter of Acts, where Peter, also a backtalker, he never got over it, did he? You know, when Jesus says, you know, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem, suffer and die, Peter said, oh no, we can't have any of that. <laughs> Remember that in, in uh, Mark 8? No, no, none of that, Lord. You know, we'll, that, 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 I mean, suffering and dying, that is a downer. <laughs> what we'll do is we'll go down there and do some preaching, get a tent, have a revival, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps some t- a couple of TV interviews, <laughs> but forget about this cross stuff, you know. He's out arguing back. And then you remember Jesus calls him Satan, the tempter. Peter and Simon Peter in chapter 10 of Acts is praying the canonical hour of sext, the sixth hour. Remember the Jew prays three times a day. He prays third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour. Third, third hour and ninth hour because that's the time of the sacrifice. We have maintained those same hours of prayer to this day. You see that in the in the in the Didache, going toward the end of the first century, not into the second. It's it's a first century work for sure. Uh, talks about saying the Our Father three times a day in place of the eighteen benedictions, the Tefia. Pray, pray the, the Our Father three times a day, third, sixth, and ninth hour. But that middle hour, when the sun is at its zenith, at the sixth hour, Peter is on the rooftop praying, and. He starts to smell the food coming up, because somebody's in the kitchen, okay, and making some hummus. <laughs> I don't know, maybe frying some kosher hot dogs. I don't know, but he smells the food. Okay. And he starts to have a vision of food. And the food he sees is not kosher. Says he sees all sorts of animals he's not allowed to eat. Great sheet let down from heaven, which I take to be a tablecloth. (laughs) And what's spread on the tablecloth? I mean, some of my favorite foods are on that tablecloth. Catfish. Okay, I know catfish is on there. Your catfish is an unclean animal. All bottom feeders are unclean animals. I was raised on catfish. With cornbread, I mean... <laughs> and and uh, and greens, and well, well, I shouldn't be. I have to get this sermon out of the way now because a couple of weeks from now I can't give this. Okay. But he's not allowed to eat. He's not allowed to eat catfish. He's not allowed to eat uh, pork. So I'm presuming he sees pork chops, ham, bacon, <laughs> sausage. Okay. But he's a good Jew. And, and God tells him in the dream, in the dream, in, in the vision, because it's sort of a day dream, 
God tells him, arise and eat. And he says, oh, no, you can't drink. I'm a good Jew. Okay. What God has called clean, don't you call unclean. Okay. Now, he has that at the sixth hour. Okay. At the ninth hour, okay. Cornelius is praying and fasting. Uh, this, would be, this, would be the, uh, this would be the next day. Cornelius is praying and fasting. Um, Peter's vision comes on Wednesday. The next day would be Thursday, which is a fast day of the Jews. Monday and Thursday, remember, dedicate. Cornelius is praying and fasting until the ninth hour, because on a fast day you did not eat until the ninth hour. And the Lord speaks to him in his vision, tells him about Simon Peter. Okay. And then you know the men show up at Peter's place. He relates the vision he has just had to the message they're giving him. He, he goes back with the men to Caesarea. He and Cornelius compare notes. And the Lord has spoken to them both at the same time. Another place where you have that is in the, the book of Tobit. Uh, notice that Tobit and Sarah are praying at exactly the same time. Uh, back when I did that long study on, uh, on Tobit, which was published in Touchstone, I took the notice of the fact they were praying at the same time, and I worked it out as best I could to see if possibly the background of that was a stage duet. But I, I couldn't work it out. Couldn't work it out. They're not the same number of words, same number, just um, when I went through and compared, compared the text. If I, was going to put the, if I was going to put the book of Tobit on as a stage play, uh, which, who knows? I would have them singing their prayer, prayers as a duet. You know, sort of like, like the, like the, uh, uh, the quartet in Rigoletto. You know, well, you got these different scenes that are all telling what love is. You know, the, and the, the Duke comes out, Bella figlia dell'amore. Then you start to get the you start to get the the uh, the uh, uh, the female voices, and they start to merge. You end up with a, with a, how did I get off on that? Come back to come back. Yeah, Tobit. But you got Sarah and Tobit praying at the same time, and their prayers are related. God's relating them. Bill. Well, I have a question back about the Samaritan woman. Um, and I, I believe what you're saying is correct, and but isn't it right for the church to see in Jesus's answer something more than a prophet? No. Didn't the woman, no. Didn't the woman no. Samaria say afterward, when she Savior of the world. Yes, isn't this is the Son of God, Savior of the world? Savior of the world. Yeah. Can this be the Messiah? The savior of the world. That's what they call him. But Father Pat, when, okay. Then the other part of the question is, now I was trained as a Presbyterian Protestant, so we did a lot of proof texting. So things like that would be, quote, a proof text for the deity of Christ. The miracles are proof texts for the deity of Christ, the, uh, and so on. But are the Protestants the only ones who did that? In the arguing for the deity of Christ in the early years, 
didn't some of the church fathers pick out these actions of Jesus to show perhaps perhaps no 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 they did not in fact the fathers of the church are emphatic that Jesus did not have divine omniscience they're emphatic on that question doesn't the church still see in those all those instances more than a prophet of course. No, no, no. We see more than a prophet. We see more than a prophet when we see him teaching in the temple. We see more than a prophet when we see him driving. But that's because of our faith. But our faith is in particular the evidence. Bill, wrong approach. You're trying to prove something. So just because the church says he's the son of God, not because the Bible? No, 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 no. Why do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Why do you believe that? Tell me, ask me, answer. Why do you believe it? Any answer is okay. okay. <laughs> How about the Bible tells me so? Yes, that's true. But the reason I understand the Bible that way, I, I realize, is because of my tradition in a Christian church and okay. my upbringing. But uh, I mean, still, we go back to the Jesus we read in the Bible. Yes, yes, yes. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I'll give you Karl Barth's answer. <laughs> because the Bible tells me so. Okay? I'm taking the Bible's word for it. Okay? Now, if you're going to take the Bible's word for it, take the Bible's word for it. Okay? We believe that the Bible means what it says. <laughs> okay? The apostles come and ask Jesus about When will these things happen? At the end of the world, the parousia. And he says, I don't know. And because if you're going to take the Bible's word for it, take the Bible's word for it. No, he says, he says the son doesn't know. Only the father knows. Okay, we really got to take the Bible's word for it. Gary. Uh, first thing I wanted to ask was, you said, and I'm not sure what word you used, you said the early church fathers emphatically did not believe. No, not emphatically, emphatically denied. Denied. What word did you use? Divine omniscience. Denied divine omniscience. Of, of, of Jesus. Okay. Um, okay, that, that, that helps right there. Helps me a real lot. In I mean, you can, you can hold that, but you, you would have to part company. Let's say the Cappadocians. Mm -hmm. okay. Not so, not good people to bring company with. Uh, well, that you know, just right then and there, right? That statement right there helps me to understand an awful lot about what we're discussing here now. Because now that I, if I can, if I can uh, understand that, then I then I don't have to worry about these questions. If that you, I, Gary, if you can understand what we're talking about, <laughs> you're way past me. I'm just trying to take what the Bible says. Let's talk about the divine omniscience. What does theology mean when it speaks of the divine omniscience? Anybody? <laughs> that's, that's a tautology. That's a tautology. 
I heard Bob. Okay. God knows everything. All right. What is everything? How many hairs on your head? Very good. Leave that one aside for a moment. Yes, yes, yes. That's that's true. That's true. But I, I'm not there yet. Uh, this has to be this has to be worked through fairly slowly. You're already jumping to point to step, to step 25. Okay. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Please, let's, please dismiss what Michael said. It's 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 way way past where where we are right now. It knows all. Every hair on every head. Okay, let's go there. How many are there? It's a finite number. Whatever it is, it's a finite number. Well, you're small now. <laughs> what I'm getting at is you don't need you don't you don't need omniscience to know that. Everything that has been made, actuality, <laughs> okay, is a finite number. There's nothing infinite about it. How does God know these things? Theology says <laughs> he knows them by creatively thinking them. He thinks them into being. We hold that view. Muslims are not so clear on that. Muslims would say he wills them into being. But we believe that all things are made in the logos, which means that all of them have at their root of those hairs <laughs> The divine omniscience. The problem that I see in, the, in some of the, particularly the evangelical approach to this, although I don't really put, I don't really put the reformed in the same category. I mean, I don't think I should. Um, is that the divine omniscience is being treated as quantitative. I know this much, and God knows that much. And since Jesus seems to know more than this, he must know that. It won't work. God does not know things objectively the way we do. Now, come back to the baby Jesus. <laughs> come back to the baby Jesus. Are you, are you with me so far, Patrick? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you so far. <laughs> Bill, <laughs> I'll give you a chance to draw your sword again. Uh, the baby Jesus lying there in the manger, what does he know? You, I, I don't know is a perfectly good answer. <laughs> 
because I'm, I'm not trying to pin people up on them on the spot. If as soon as somebody says, ah, he's lying there with the divine omniscience, as soon as somebody tells me that, you've already postulated a subject, a knowing subject in Jesus of Nazareth, which is different from the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That is the root of Nestorianism. Nestorianism. Yes. Yes. Um, I'll, I'll come back. We we took a little bit of Nestorius last week, didn't we? Two weeks ago. Oh, was it two weeks ago? Okay. Uh, you guys, I think, were at were at uh, birthing class. <laughs> okay. Nestorius was uh, Nestorius was the uh, Archbishop of Constantinople. <laughs> He was also an Antiochian father. <laughs> uh, I remember, remember once hearing a, a speech by or a lecture by Metropolitan Philip. And it was all very gung-ho, gung-ho, gung-ho Antioch. Everything's Antioch. We got to get the, the Antiochian tradition and so forth. And then, then Metropolitan Philip paused and he said, well, he says, on the other hand, most of the church's heresies did come from Antioch. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I was sitting there thinking, I, I, he, I hope he mentions this, and he did. He came out. I, I think he probably intuited that I was thinking that. <laughs> You're praying, and he was praying. And <laughs> but if you say that the Son of God is lying there in that manger, which is true, okay, and knowing all of these things, You've made him a subjective principle which is different from the man Jesus Christ. That is fundamentally the claim of Nestorius. That there are two knowing, reflecting subjects inside. So when I say, not when I say, because I would never say it, <laughs> But when that ancient Christian hymn cited in the second chapter of Philippians says, Ekenosen hefton, he emptied himself. What did he empty? He took our form. Remember, Paul says, in, in, in this, this is in 2 Corinthians 8. who being rich became poor for our sake that we by his poverty might become rich. Listen to that. You've got the, the full economy of salvation in there. He became what we are to make us what he is. For his poverty, that is say his hum humanity is humanity. He makes us partakers of his divinity. Now, how does that pertain to knowledge? Now, Michael, anything you want to say about uh, the knowledge of possible things would be the time. <laughs> no, no, have something in mind to say, Michael. <laughs> 
mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you, so I, I don't have... No, I know you're not. I know you're... But yeah. in terms of, like, not... Well, answering the, the question, you know, what is divine omniscience or what is omniscience or something like that, we could say something like, well, it is knowing everything that can be known. Um, That's right. In which case, we can say there, there are things that can be known that are actual. You know, that you are sitting right there, that we are right here. These are actualities or whatever. Um, there are things that can be known that are possibilities um, that we're all going to, uh, I don't know, have our Pascha meal over at that place where we have it, whatever it's called, um, <laughs> at such and such a time, such and such a place, or whatever. Um, uh, but then there, there are things that um, don't fit into either of these categories. That's right. Like, um, you know, if I said, well, God knows that I'm my own dad. Right? Would we want to claim something like that if no. we're talking about omniscience? Does everybody get that? Yes, I do. Yeah, some of you are still looking at me. Well, yes, I, I don't think we understood what you it said. It was the... Yeah. Yeah. If, 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 if yes, we sir. say, um, okay, so... I'm my own dad. Is that daddy. Right, yeah, dad. Whatever. Um, so if we say that, hey, look, omniscience is just knowing everything, right? So then propositions like this, like, well, God knows the proposition, I am my own dad, right? Is that true or is it false? That's right. How could you be your own father? In other words, what Michael's, what Michael's getting into, Michael's trying to explain to you, there is a limited realm of things that are possible. Things that contain logical, internal, metaphysical contradictions. Right. Yes, yes. If, if, if there is a such thing as a contradiction, and I submit that there is, um, then that is, that is the sort of thing that nothing in reality can correspond to. Right? Right. Yes, to. Um, so, like, you know, you being your dad or you being your own mommy, or whatever the case Are you is. having a square circle? Yes, or a round square. I say round square, square circle, same difference, right? These are the oh, I don't know. I think never mind. <laughs> the one is highly preferable to the other. If I, if I said to you, hey, look, you know, I, I have a round square in my pocket, right? And I, I take it and I pass it out to you or whatever. You know before this thing gets around to you that there is nothing there, right? If, by mere reflection, because the concept that I have submitted to you is the sort of thing that cannot exist, right? right. Thus, it cannot be known, either actually or possible. All you can do is say it. You can say it. You can say it. And, that's, and that is really what passes for thought these days. <laughs> you can say it, and the words come out, but it doesn't correspond to anything knowable. You cannot picture it. Michael, my, my, uh, when I used to teach logic class, Sometimes I would, I would pass as, as many as eight people out of 30. I would ask, begin the class by saying, I'm going to give you guys an argument. Some fruits are purple, and some fruits are grapes. Therefore, some grapes are purple. How many of you think that that is a valid argument? Whole forest of hands would go up. Because <laughs> you haven't proved anything. You had, you had two I propositions. You had no A or O proposition. You had two I propositions. We can't possibly prove anything. And all these people are saying, yeah, you've just proved that there's such a thing as purple grapes. You haven't proved anything, haven't proved anything of the sort. Um, I thought you were going in a different direction. In a different direction? Yeah. Well, maybe I am. What, what 
I was kind of, I was kind of glad you didn't go there. <laughs> We don't. No, we don't. We don't. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the most the Cappadocians were interested in proving, the Cappadocian fathers, Basil and the two Gregories, most they were interested in proving is that the doctrine itself does not violate a law of logic. That's why they distinguish in God between his uzia and the hypostasis. God as being and God as relational. The only thing that does, Jerry, is set a wall around the Trinity. Certain things you can't say. You can't say there's three gods. the, Holy, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is a, is, is a construction of the church, a dogmatic formulation of the church, to safeguard the mystery of the life of God in which we participate. Did Jesus, I've, I've, I've had students in all seriousness. But it's not actual. Oh, yes. Oh, oh yes. God, 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 God. No, God really does exist. The Trinity, within your argument, is of explanation of a square and a sphere, right? We can't really get our, we can't really get our hands on. I mean, the Holy Trinity is a square and a sphere. No, no. This, this is where the con, the, con, the island, no, which is the mystery to me. Huh? The, the, it's a mystery, but here, um, I talked about this a few years ago when I when I um, gave those lectures here. Here, uh, I think, and this is probably way beyond anything that we can actually talk out here in, in this um, Sunday school class, but here we have to make some kind of distinction between what is a logical contradiction and what is something like a paradox or an antinomy. That's the terminology. Exactly. That's what I think of yeah. yeah. There's, there, there's a huge difference here. Even in logic, there's a huge difference between these two. And so to, to affirm something like, okay, well, you know, from, given what you said, then then um, what we really believe when, when we say, hey, look, we believe in the Trinity or whatever, is that, you know, we're just saying something like, oh, you know, we all have our own squares or something. Just something as ridiculous and, and non-existent as that. That is definitely not true, right? It's not true because the Bible says so, etc. Um, it's, it's a different claim that we're making, right? The, proposi- the form of the proposition is, is at least similar, if, if, if not exact. Um, but the content differs. The, uh, the direction I thought you were going into, and hoping you wouldn't, was the contrary, con- conflict between Banyas and Molina on, on the, uh, the existence in God of Scientia Media. Yeah. And I'm so glad you didn't bring that up. Isa? Isa? I'm sorry, Isa, you had to do it again. Guys, please, I can't hear him. Time off what we talked about here and also with Bill's question on the Samaritan woman is this idea was with the Trinity. Okay, how do we know that there's not four persons of the Trinity? The only reason we know that, because you can't logically come to the Trinity, is because one of those persons came down and in the flesh revealed it. 
Basically, somebody who knows God as he knows himself says, this is how I am. This is, this is, this is so important what he's just saying. It's so extremely important. Um, Jesus does not know himself, his identity, as a proposition. He knows his identity by being his identity and reflecting on who he is. Yeah, acquaintance knowledge. Yeah. So, he, so I've, I've heard people say well, he had no idea he was the son of God until the God the Father told him his baptism. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased at. Wow. <laughs> It was never at any point in his life possible for him to reflect on his identity without knowing himself to be the Son of God. At no point. And as soon as he can talk and think about it, see, how do you know you're Jerry Curry? Because you haven't forgotten. <laughs> and when, when people forget, we call it amnesia. Amnesia doesn't mean I've forgotten my multiplication tables. Amnesia is a psychological rupture where I can no longer remember who I am because my memory does not hold it anymore. The memory, the memory of Jesus Christ, if some of you want to stand back, just, just read about it. And I have given to them the glory that I had with you before the world began. <laughs> Hang on, Jerry. I, I think Valentin had a hand here. So, yeah, actually, the two things that I was, I was thinking while I was talking to you, one is there are certain mysteries that it's very hard for us to understand. And uh, when I say, so the, the, Trinity, the Trinity is one, but we can actually have simpler ones. Like, for instance, we are all talking about the, model, the atomic model, the electrons, electrons being into a state, and all, all the other things. These are things that actually the only way to understand them is actually having a mathematical formula. If you if you were to draw that electron or to draw that atom and everything, mm -hmm. it would be a picture for us to get into it and then understand later the mathematical formula. But that model doesn't really exist. Correct, of course. I think it's the same thing. I mean, we have a model for the for the Trinity that is given to us, but to actually go and understand exactly what is the essence of that, that's I think we'll have to go really to the next level as a human. Another dimension, actually. And that, yeah, so to be, to be something else in order for us to get there. So I think that was another, another role that Jesus had. came to earth to build that model for us. So then actually we can get to the next level and understand all the mysteries and everything. I may, I may have you write the epilogue to my book. <laughs> Very good, thank you. Um, you're getting some idea what the what the uh, what the book is about. Not the stuff Michael was talking about. None of that's in the book. <laughs> none of that. None of that's in the book. Um, I've had I've had seminarians actually tell me, ask me, did Jesus know he was the consubstantial Son of God? And I said, how could he possibly have known that? How could he possibly? He didn't think in terms of consubstantiality or anything of this sort. He knows God as his father. It's a personal relationship between him, and he's been, he's been the son of God from all eternity. He doesn't reflect upon it using Aristotelian language of another century. Well, he is who he is, and he knows who he is. Um, and the, and the, 
The great, the great thing about the Gospels is that it's revealed to us in the stories who he is. Remember I said when I started this thing in Chalcedon, the past two Sundays I had, you have the, the paper from Chalcedon, you have those five paragraphs from Chalcedon. Uh, the reason I'm going to Chalcedon is all is, is an aid, a help to reading the Gospel. Uh, how does Mark, the Gospel of Mark begin? Okay. First verse. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got that? Now, at this point in the story, who knows that Jesus is the Son of God? Okay. The writer and the reader. <laughs> okay. 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 A few verses later, Jesus comes to be baptized by John. Okay. The father says to him, you are my beloved son. The reader already knew that. Okay. But now, within the complex of the story, three subjects know it. Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the writer, and the reader. Okay. Now, another character enters the story called the slanderer. And that is how I'm, in every way in my book, I'm, I'm, I am translating diabolos that way. I'm not, I'm not using another form of diabolos, um, like devil. Because the word means slanderer. You remember um, the first chapter of, of um, Job in the, in, in the Septuagint. The Shatan, which is a, a Persian name, Shatan is the Diabolos. And those two are identified together. The Shatan and the Diabolos are identified together later on in the 12th chapter of, uh, of Revelation. The sh but this, is, this Shatan and Diabolos are the same person. Okay. Satan okay, is the same one who's going to tempt Jesus, the same one who tempted Job. Amen. If you are my beloved son, you're my beloved son. So this character enters in, okay, the slanderer. He's introduced right away in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's introduced right away. As soon as, as, soon as you've got Jesus set and he's been identified, okay, and God says how happy he is with Jesus. Okay. This is my beloved son. Man, I really love him. I mean, he has my favor. Immediately, this character out of Job appears on the scene. Okay. We'll see about that. <laughs> okay. He's going to do to Jesus what he did to Job. Okay. And before the gospel is over, he will do it all. He comes, he comes to Jesus and says, well now, I hear you're the son of God. Okay. If that's the case... And you've been fasting for 40 days. The least you can do is change some of these stones down here to bread. And that's how the thing starts. And then Jesus defeats all of the temptations. Okay. And then he comes down and immediately starts driving out demons. <laughs> and when the demons are being driven out, they say, oh, we know who you are. 
Nobody else in the story knows who he is. Gradually, bit by bit, Mark starts to construct the story. He will have Jesus giving all sorts of indications. Remember the 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 uh, you've got you've got the, the the screams of the demons already in chapter one of Mark. Then you have beginning in chapter two. You have five five controversial stories with the with the uh, with the Pharisees about the Sabbath and Son of Man forgiving sins. Okay, there's where you start to get some suspicions, Bill, who he is. That he forgives sins. Who can forgive sins but God only? What we're starting to see, he's doing something that indicates a claim. Now, we are Chalcedonian Christians. We know since verse 1 who he is. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. <laughs> we, already, we already got that. We, we come to that with that presupposition. Then gradually he, he works through, and then you get, the, you get the two bread cycles. The one beginning in... Uh, chapter 6, verse 30, and running to the end of chapter 8 of of Mark. Then you get the, 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 pardon me, chapter 7 of Mark, chapter 7 of Mark. Then you get the the second bread cycle, which begins in chapter 9. So you have two multiplications of loaves. Each multiplication of loaves is followed by a boat trip. Each boat trip is followed by a discourse on bread. Each discourse on bread is followed by a fight with the Pharisees and the the critics. Each of these is followed by healing. Healing of deaf and dumb man, healing of blind man. You have these three, Mark works it out very, very well. He's gradually revealing who this is. Then you come to the, you come to chapter 8, about verse 31, I believe. And Jesus starts to prophesy the passion. But before he does that, he turns to the disciples and says, who do men say that I am? And they give, oh, some say John the Baptist, you know, some say uh, Ronald McDonald. I mean, they give all these, 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 everybody's view about who, some people say Superman, you know, who do you say that I am? Okay, now we got it, the Christ. Now notice Matthew has that confession of St. Peter greatly expanded the full faith of the church at this point. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. On this rock I will build my church. Jesus, it's much more played up. Then Jesus starts to give the three prophecies of the Passion, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, one in chapter 10. See, what, what Mark is trying to get you to see is who Jesus is, second part of the gospel, toward the end of chapter 8 is, what does he do? Then you start to get the three prophecies of the passion. Each of those followed by certain things. They're, they're, it's quite symmetric. You know, until you get the, the last prophecy of the passion and the response of James and John in chapter 10, remember that? They don't hear a thing he says. He has to go down to Jerusalem and suffer and die. It's going to be the cross. And they come up and say, well, you know, I mean, while we're on the subject, we'd like to be on your right and left hand when you come into your kingdom. He just told them he's going to end up in a cross. And they want to be beside him. Very interesting. Because eventually two other guys get beside him. And that's not what Jimmy and Johnny Zebedee had in mind. 
then you see what he's doing? He's introducing who Jesus is and then what he does. Because what he does is not significant except in terms of who he is. Um, I see some hands going through here. Eva. Right. And he emptied himself of power that God would have and man would not. Right. Is is that the extent of it? Well, I, I, I haven't thought much further than that. That doesn't mean that God is not going to act through his mind. And it certainly does not mean that God is not going to act through his body. Because God acts through his body. The divine power comes exuding from his body. That's a that's a, actually a major theme of the Gospel of Luke. Luke lays a great deal more stress on the descent of the Holy Spirit. I, I point that in the section of my book. Luke lays a great deal more the descent of the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus does, he does in the power of the Spirit, which is what uh, St. Peter, if I recall, says in the book of Acts. He comes in the power of the Spirit. Um, that's why when Jesus gets up to give the inaugural sermon in, 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 uh, in, Acts, in, in Luke 4, uh, how does he begin? He begins by reading Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord isn't on me, for he has anointed me in order to, and then run through all the things that he did. That's a very Luke and Luke and approach to it. Uh, 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 Robert. Yes. Uh, is it is it correct that the um, Jesus's limitation that he accepted in that emptying of himself is essential to our redemption? That that that's part a major part of the of the act of the redemption and the and the um, bringing together of, of the human and divine. I would say so, but let me just tell you, I probably won't deal with that. To say that something is essential means it couldn't have happened without it. But that's a speculative question. There, who was telling me a story recently? He asked, he asked a an Orthodox monk something. And the monk simply said, in the Orthodox Church, we don't try to make something of something. (laughs) There's a certain reluctance to reify. Am I getting the right word there? Okay. (laughs) That's fine. Well, reify. Reify. That's fine. Reify. I'm I'm not... Yeah. We don't... We sometimes have to do that for purposes of, of protecting doctrine, or protecting the teaching. But what we're handing on is not just these, these structures. We don't just hand on the pipes. 
the structure of pipes. The purpose is to hand on the living water. The pipes are there so we won't make a mess of everything. You know, you have, you have a certain kind of religion that as long as all the pipes are clear and there's no leaks in the pipes, they don't care there's any water in them at all. You know, that, that's a rather formal religion. You know, that's the religion of the Pharisees. And, and that, I, I, have to, I, I have, to have to tell you, I hate that above all things. Um, my, my attitude toward even, even rubrics is the attitude that Robert E. Lee had toward marching. <coughs> Remember, after Robert E. Lee, after the war was over, and the South had spent its last shred of dignity at, the, at Appomattox Courthouse, and Robert Lee Lee had to sign away everything he had ever lived for. Okay. He came back and he became president of this little college, which was eventually named for him, Washington Lee. Well, they had a military band at the college. And of course, they're playing marching music. Robert E. Lee would stand there, pick up the beat, and make sure he was walking out of step. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, the, uh, because of this, I'm, I'm very much afraid of just formal religion where everything is being done correctly but there's no life. And then there's another kind that says, well, structure's not important. You know, we don't really need all these pipes. We're just going to open the front door and spray the place down with a fire hose. Well, that's not good either. What you want is the pipes in place, but you want the living water. For this reason, Robert, my own preference is always to speak of and to think about that which is alive. Remember this morning's text from, uh, from, from uh, Ignatius of Antioch, chapter 7, verse 2 of, uh, of his letter to the Romans. There's within him what he calls the hedor zone, the living water. That is to say, it flows. It flows. The incarnation is a process it's not a process that's static. I mean, there's no such thing. It's a process, not static. It flows. He has experiences that he reflects on. Thank you. And in reflecting upon them, he has changed. By making decisions, Jesus has changed. He grows. That's what human beings do. They grow. He makes changes. So when the Epistle of Hebrews describes his death... It doesn't say he died. It says he tasted death for every man. He passed through it thinking of you, thinking of me. The, the end of chapter 2 of Galatians. The life I live now in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me, gave himself up for me. Okay. He loved me. He didn't just sort of love the human race. But God gave to Jesus in his death the knowledge of each one of us. He revealed the, to, to the Lord himself the, the very hairs on our head, which in my case wasn't 
difficult at all. Uh, but he loved me. He tasted death for each man. Hekastos in the, in, in, in the Greek. Hekastos. He tastes death for each person. And, that's, and Paul's, Paul's convinced of this in, in the second chapter of Galatians. He loved me. Gave himself up for me. Uh, so we've got somebody who's, who's completely human, but to whom a great deal is being revealed, and on the basis of which he's making decisions, and he's being changed. Uh, Father Hopko wrote to me several years ago. I think Father Hopko didn't think I understood this. So he wrote to me, he says, he says, you know, Father Patrick, it is arguable that Jesus continued to learn right up to his death. I wrote back to Father Hopko and I said, Father, it is not arguable. It is certain. <laughs> okay. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He wasn't just obedient, but he learned it. He went through the process of obedience by the things which he suffered. I think I saw another hand back. Ah, yes, sir. I hope I'm summarizing. No, I'm not saying it was always omniscient. No. There is a dis distinct day and hour when he will return, and he said he didn't know it. But he always knew who he was. He always knew who he was. So that's not omniscient. The, the human mind, which is the only mind the man Jesus Christ had, the human mind, can't think omniscient, omnisciently. To think omnisciently is to will things into being. There is no doubt that he has changed quite a bit. <laughs> exactly what I'm to say on that, son, I really don't know. I don't know. I, I really don't know. What, what happens to Jesus when he enters with his own blood into the Holy of Holies, having attained eternal salvation for us? When he goes into the Holy of Holies in the temple not made by hands, as the high priest and goes before the ancient of days and presents his own sacrifice. As Hebrews says, that's behind the veil. <laughs> I better let you guys go, though. Nancy? Um, this gentleman, young gentleman back here, he said, so we always knew he was the son of God, and you answered... He always knew who he was. Are, there, are those two sentences identical? Are those two no. sentences different? <laughs> the one is an experience, who he is. Yes. When you reflect upon the experience, you must identify it and formulate it. It's son of yes, God. Yes, but, but presumably that's changing as he's growing and learning. 
And, and that's going to be another chapter of the book. How does he, know, how does he learn, grow all this? By studying the Bible. By studying the Bible. And, and that's what you see him doing. He's finding himself in the scriptures. I better let you go. I really must let you go. God know things? Uh, experientially and maybe propositionally as well? No, God does not know things that way. God okay. not knows things in the act of creating them. The human mind can't do that. If you say he does, then you've got the Son of God inside Jesus. Definition of Nestorianism. So, God is omniscient. Is that, a, is, that a, is that true? Yeah, 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 that's true. And if Jesus is God, doesn't he have to be omniscient in some ways? In some ways. You can't have omniscience in some ways. Okay. You got it or you don't. It's like a little bit pregnant. The, the, well, but Jesus was there at creation. So how would, he was how, 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 come on, Jesus was not there at creation. The word is there at creation. What does the little baby in the crib on Christmas know? Who he is. Nothing. Doesn't know who he is. So the, the, the point that he drew our attention to in terms of the Greek, I don't think you translated um, the akenosin. Uh, did, you, did, you, did he translate it? I can't remember. Anyway. Empty. Huh? Empty. Yeah. The, the, the term that, that Paul uses, akenosin, right, he emptied himself, right? That's really important for understanding what Father Pat is talking about here. If you don't understand that, you're going to look at this as heresy. Well, right. well you might not understand <laughs> it, but you, you well, at least, sure. yeah, at least yeah. have to accept it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if the second person... He didn't, even have, he didn't even have the experience of being who he was in relation to... That's right. He didn't have that even? He didn't have that either. He had nothing at all. It was real self-emptying. When he said, when, when Paul... But, even, but babies, human babies, don't they have the experience, even if they don't have the knowledge of being related to another? Oh, yeah, I'm, he, certainly. I'm not, I'm not denying that. So he had something, right? He knew he wanted yeah. Mary's breast. He, he, after a while, he was able to distinguish between himself and mommy. After a while, he, he, was, he had some sense of where his lips started and his mother's breast stopped. I was reading about the Orthodox understanding of faith as it relates to baptism and baptizing babies. And I think it was, I can't remember who was writing Probably me. It was, it was a little pamphlet that came from Consulium Press. I didn't write it, but, um, I, but I agree with it. It, it said basically that even though a child might not be able to express in some kind of proposition, like a confession of faith, like a believer's baptism, that he has an awareness that he is related to, or that he is part of a family. And that, and not in more than that, more than that, but he also trusts whatever his parents trust. Okay. And that's, pardon me, I'm sorry, right. and that is the basis on which we baptize babies, which is why I will not baptize a baby off the street. 
he's got to be in a Christian family mm-hmm. or he's being raised in the faith. And if, that's, and if, if that family just claims to be Christian and there's no evidence of it, I don't have to have a baby. I'm saying Christ said to have that knowledge. She right. Fair enough. That, that's fine. That's, that's not, I'm, not, I'm not denying that. I'm not denying that. No, no. Is this, is this, is this all in your book? Or some of it? Not, not what you just raised, no. Oh. But, but maybe about the difference between experiential and propositional and that kind of thing that you're talking no, about. No, no. There will be all, almost no propositional theology in my... In my uh, I, I still don't know what you're talking about. That's why. I was, <laughs> I was maybe I could read it again. What you were just well, suggesting- I hope you will read it before, before the years before the years over. I hope you will read it. What you were just suggesting about what a baby quote unquote knows or whatever, um, in terms of infant baptism or whatever, this is all human, right? And insofar as he is fully human, then this, these sorts of things we cannot we cannot deny them. Yeah, does that make sense? Um, That's what I'm saying. You can't. If you're going to say he didn't know anything, that doesn't make sense to hold it because he had that at least. Oh, come on now. Come on now. You're giving. You're giving. I say he didn't know. I see what you mean. Didn't know anything. You're you're giving an extreme meaning where he'd be the most idiotic baby in history. (laughs) That's what I thought you were saying. I didn't understand what you were saying. He didn't know more than any other baby does. Okay. I was. I, I, I took that up from last week where I had a series of people getting up and insisting that Jesus knew everything. Oh, okay. But didn't he have the experience of being related to the Eternal Father, or no? How, yes, I'm sure he did, but exactly how, how to describe that experience, I wouldn't have any idea. Okay. There are others, yeah. Uh, I, I know. I think I understand the relationship with the Eternal Father, but I can talk about this hunger for the human. Thanks, Father. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday. Somewhere, there's a passage of the Word of God. Services in the church, and I can't find it. When our Lord was in paradise with the thief, he was also in the tomb resting. He was in Hades, rescuing Adam and Eve. I did that this morning. He fills all things. I did, I did that this morning. It is in the liturgy. Yeah, it's, it's, it, yes, it's, it's this part right after the priest does the proscomedian. He's incensing the church in the tomb of the body. And Hades with the soul, and paradise with the thief, and on the throne of the Father and Holy Spirit. Wast thou, O boundless Christ, filling all things, bearing life and more fruitful than paradise? Thy tomb, O Christ, is the fountain of our resurrection. Great stuff. Happy birthday, darling. Thank you, Father.